Lena Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. So, hi, everybody. Um, today, we're here with Yulia Rone, who's a postdoc at the Cambridge Minteroo Center for Technology and Democracy. Um, so thank you so much for being with us today, Julia. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so we're going to be talking about a number of things that, that you've researched on and you're researching on now here at Cambridge, um, from the far right to citizen media. So one of the things we talked about on last episode was the relationship between misinformation online and then like mobilization of certain political groups, especially on the far right you know, a lot of the discourse right now is around um, extremism or hate speech online, and it's kind of uh, framed in sort of like content moderation. That's sort of how the, the debate is, that this kind of misinformation or hate speech is poisoning the public sphere, creating echo chambers, polarization. Um, and so your research is really interesting because you're, you're not just looking at like the spread of content, but actual mobilizations of, of far-right groups. So maybe we could talk about that um, the, the, you know, the research you've done specifically on like European anti-migration uh, protests and, and what's that link between online content distribution and mobilization? So maybe the first thing I should say is that I'm actually a social movement scholar. So I kind of tend to see social movements wherever I look. But <laughs> my research started, I, I started um, this paper that came out recently um, as a project on fake news and disinformation. And my idea was to check um, different websites, European websites, so Italian, German, and uh, British, that were framed and called basically fake news websites. And as I was reading their content, um, I quickly realized that basically a lot of the, the stuff there was not necessarily disinformation. So a lot of these websites had news that were quite accurate. They were very uh, biased in the sense of they always manage to choose only the news about immigrant crime and ignore crime committed by anyone else. Basically. Right. Um, so they, they had a very strong selection bias and they had a very strong frame bias. So they always framed their news in this kind of scandalous, anger provoking, very emotional way. But they were not necessarily fake news. And I was basically back then asking myself, what are we looking at? And then I started actually going beyond content and looking at the other sections of the website. And what I saw quite often was that they were crowdfunding, they were um, organizing protests, they were reporting from protests. And I thought, okay, but how is this different from any of the very cool, you know, progressive left-wing movements that I am researching? Mm -hmm. And in terms of form, it wasn't very different. So I, I quickly realized that what I was looking at was actually a form of far-right um, social movement mobilization, very strongly connected also to party politics, because quite often these websites gave platform to politicians as well. And that's how I basically, for myself, I decided to, to move the focus away from this kind of accuracy or like lack of accuracy debate and, and look at what's happening as a political phenomenon, which was a phenomenon of mobilizing people with certain political views. And the reason why I think this is very important is that if it's a question of accuracy, the, the way to solve this is by correcting it, right? It's wrong, you know? Why are you saying this? We flag content that's misinformation. If it's a political mobilization that we are looking at, you can't solve this problem like this. It's a much deeper societal problem. And yeah, that's why I find it so interesting. And I, for, yeah, I, I have decided to basically focus on the political aspect of it more than on the disinformation aspect, of it, the content. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that was another thing that, that struck me reading your, your paper is that like we think of misinformation or extremist content or hate speech online as something that happens kind of naturally. Like if the medium or the platform exists, like unfortunately, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but like this is just going to happen. And so we need to sort of think about ways to, to um, you know, design it differently. But the, the, your framing suggests that it isn't this sort of like natural phenomenon. In fact, it's, it's being deliberately organized. Um, so, so, so in that sense, like, do you think, do you think like the rise of the far right, like 
when we when we think about like misinformation online, is it a mistake to think of it as like a organic process? And do you find in your research that it's like very clear, like, okay, here are the groups, here are the people, here's the money um, that that's funding this content? I would say there is not a single straightforward answer to this question. So first of all, I'll be now a very boring person uh, because I'm supervising students on the topic of disinformation. So there is a very big difference between misinformation, which is quite often unintentional, and disinformation. I mean, even the terms mm -hmm. that we use, because disinformation is the one that is basically organized, it has intent, it wants to deceive people. Uh, quite often on the internet, it's difficult to distinguish. But at least from what I've observed in Europe, um, we have both, um, and again, both are interesting, but for me, they are not, the, they are not what matter. They are not the important. So what we see quite often, for example, in Germany, um, there was a very cool article that came out recently um, written by people from the Weizenbaum Institute in Berlin, and they were showing that in Germany, the mainstream media was just so uh, careful not to allow far-right uh, opinions, basically, into the public sphere. The internet became this space where um, far-right alternative media started to proliferate. So the first far-right blog that appeared in Germany appeared actually before the crisis, the financial crisis. It's, uh, it was a reaction to the war in Iraq, and it was kind of you know, pro-Bush. It's, it's very, very interesting. But this website and then a series of websites that appeared after the financial crisis, this was the real boom of, of this movement. Um, I think they appeared organically. They were like the, the first one was um, founded by a physical education teacher. And a lot of the ones that appeared afterwards were again, yeah, created by journalists um, or again, citizens, again, normal people. Very different from Breitbart, if we look at it, um, including Breitbart in um, its UK version, which has very, very established former journalists from Daily Mail and you know, newspapers that are quite popular and with a very big reach, and that has clear corporate funding. Um, we have also a lot of websites where we can't ascertain what's going on. But again, so I'm talking uh, mostly about these websites that produce content. If we look at Facebook, if we look at Twitter, if we look at social media where a lot of everyday citizens, people like you and me go, um, I would say, again, it's quite often actually bottom-up, even though then they... Um, redistribute and popularize content from these websites that produce it first. So I think it's, it's, it's very different um, country per country. You can't say that there is a universal formula. What we see, however, is that all across Europe, regardless of the particularities of the different contexts, there is a very, very um, strong resurgence of conservative thought and of um, far-right um, thinking, movements, mobilization, which is unprecedented. And I would say this definitely followed the, the economic crisis from 2008. Um, and again, they do use this information occasionally. Misinformation appears organically. But what is more interesting is the political agenda behind it, which is an agenda which is against immigration, against what they would call the gender ideology, um, increasingly uh, also a climate skeptic agenda. And mm -hmm. this is what we find in common. Uh, sometimes they use... Uh, disinformation to support their political agenda. Sometimes they use accurate facts, but the question is there is a movement and it has very clear goals and everything is yeah, fair um, for them in order to, to push their message forward. Mm -hmm. So do you think that the internet has made a difference or is there anything fundamentally different? Is it just like there, there's this new platform um, this new technology that they're using, um, or or is there fun, is something different about studying social movements online or offline? Yeah, that's the one million dollar question because the far right <laughs> was mobilizing on like it was mobilizing before that, right? It was mobilizing in the very early years of the internet. It also had zines before the years of the internet, so it had always ways of of um, you know, creating communities, uh, spreading out its message, reaching out to new people, etc. The internet makes this, I think, much more efficient and much more successful. Um, it, it facilitates um, far-right uh, people with far-right ideas who want to connect to each other. I think it is also um, important because mainstream media in many European countries, at least, were quite, as I mentioned in the case of Germany, which is still a paradigmatic case, Mainstream media were quite wary of, of allowing far-right ideas. And so the internet allowed people to express themselves much in a much more free you know, way. 
and and to share things that were unthinkable before like if not unthinkable then at least impossible to say publicly so it allowed people to push the boundaries of, of what one can say um and in this sense i think it did make a difference is it the cause for the appearance of far right absolutely not did it facilitate the the far right mobilization very much so yes <laughs> then so this is then kind of an interesting question, which I know you and I have discussed before, and we've discussed at the Minaru Center, which is like, we talk about, it, it does seem like the far right is more prominent online than say the far left or, or any other kind of extremist movement. And do you think, is there a reason for that? Like, is it just that, like, or what do you see as the reason for the resurgent for the far right? And is that, related to why they seem to be so good at using the internet. Yeah, so I have two arguments about this. One is like boring materialist one, uh, and I think it's the correct <laughs> one. And the other one is one that's more, I think, related to psychology where I'm not. But yeah, I think the question you give is, and you pose is it's extremely important because when the um, all the social networks that we're discussing currently appeared, the, the early years of Facebook and even the World Wide Web before that. Um, in this period, people thought they are going to be a force of emancipation, you know, uh, empowering people, give voice to voices like groups that have never been heard before. It was a very um, utopian discourse uh, that we had about this media. Also, of course, encouraged by them. Um, there was a, a piece I really liked back in the days by Evgeny Morozov, which was that if you listen to Silicon Valley people speaking to each other, you would make the mistake or like you would mistakenly think you're in the midst of the Russian revolution. So there are certain <laughs> powers like emancipation and power to the people. And now this has changed. So clearly um, everything that we expected from A, alternative media and B, social media has uh, been shattered. And what we see now is that these media have been very, very skillfully used by the far right. So projects, progressive left-wing projects such as indie media that we remember from again, the early 2000s, by now have been very, I think, strongly marginalized. Um, yeah, and we are in a situation in which we even had to reconsider the definition of alternative media in order to be able to talk about the far right. So only two years ago, I think a very interesting article appeared by Christopher Hoth, I think was the author and several other people, who started talking about far right alternative media, or at least the definition of alternative media that allows us to think of it not only as a democratic tool of empowerment, but you know, as mm -hmm. what we are doing. Why has the far been so good? Um, so my, my materialistic first um, explanation, funding. I would say the left everywhere is underfunded, which is not very surprising considering that it wants to tax the rich. So I think <laughs> you have people who are very ideologically convinced on the left, which for one reason or another is not as prominent I think, nowadays. Um, the far right has very, very good funding. Um, when we are talking, for example, about climate skeptic messages, it's not very difficult to think who would fund this, right? Um, the second explanation is, I would say, more psychological one. And I think the far right has been very, very good in, in using indignation, anger, moral panic in order to attract attention and, you know, make people engaged uh, and engage people with, with um, their topics. I am really, for example, curious, and this is something that I want to work on, uh, the far right in many contexts has been very, very skillful in framing issues such as um, immigration or education as issues that pertain directly to the well-being, health and future of children. So it also has this type of, you know, anger and indignation, but also caring discourse. If we don't stop this, our children will suffer, civilization is falling. So I, I would say the combination of funding and very, very um, skillful framing of their messages has been very crucial. Or what's going on? I guess one of the things, and you you kind of mentioned it before. What one of the things that you said kind of created this opportunity for the far right online is that um, like mainstream traditional media um, was was hesitant to to kind of mainstream or legitimize these these um, um, opinions or, or voices. And and I think you see that now across the world that the traditional media is struggling about what to do in terms of like both how to cover um, like the rise of the far right and and how to how to grapple with like what they're arguing for in a way that like brings attention 
to it and yet doesn't legitimize it. Um, and as you said before, you know, originally alternative media was because of a, like a legitimate grievance, which was that sometimes traditional media does not um, highlight like marginalized voices. So, so how do you think about both like online and offline digital platforms? Like how, how do you, do you have an opinion about how um, like traditional media should grapple with or like think about how to cover the rise of the far right? What matters for me in this question is also the importance of national media models, because we talk about mainstream media a bit in this general way. While again, there is a lot of difference between different contexts. And so there is a researcher who is now in the Netherlands, Leonide Jonge, who wrote her PhD thesis comparing the response of mainstream media to the far right in three countries that are otherwise very similar, Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg. And what I found very interesting in her thesis was that to a large extent, the response of mainstream media uh, was conditioned also on the type of funding they got. So Luxembourg, that had a completely state-funded media, basically said, we don't want to represent this. We are going to stick with our very ethical ideals. And that's what they did. Netherlands, the Netherlands on the other hand, basically decided that they cannot to lose a share of the market. So all these people who actually hold far-right views. And they opened up. Um, for the far right, they started representing this, etc. Is there any adequate response? So I think she didn't try to explain in, in um, her thesis from what I remember whether the response of the media actually leads to success, the success of the far right or not. We don't know. Um, we still have no clear idea of how to deal with this. German journalists are also very much struggling with it. One thing is certain for me, we can't uh, rely on this kind of cordon sanitaire idea that we will just shun the far right and this will solve the question, especially with um, Germany, but we also saw it in the US, I think, particularly clear. When you have a, your president tweeting something, as a journalist, you have the moral responsibility to report on it, or when you have uh, the far right in parliament. There are very few arguments that can justify ignoring public figures who have been elected democratically. Um, and this makes me think that it's not a problem just of media coverage. It's, it's again, I, I want to insist on this, a deeper societal problem. And this is why I think the reaction to the far right by the media, regardless of whether it's mainstream media or social network platforms, is important. But there is no doubt about this. But it's not the thing that is going to solve the larger question. So it's something that we should talk about, and it's good to talk about. But it's not the, the cure that will, will solve the rise of the far right by no means because this rise comes from economic factors it comes from a lot of dissatisfaction for a number of reasons um, and actually good reasons um, it's not a media problem and therefore i think the solution won't be a media solution so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so then i mean so in the u.s context in particular in the past few weeks this has been you know this this media solution has been in the news because of the deplatforming of, of trump um, like Facebook and other social media sites trying to take off far right content, um, AWS basically shutting down um, like the alternative media parlor. So, so in your mind, um, I guess kind of two questions. One, if this isn't a media problem, um, how, sh like, what should the response to to far right content on online be? Um, should 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 these platforms attempt to do it, whether it's it's effective um, or not? Yeah, so I would say the far right is not a media problem. Uh, mm -hmm. And there the responses are many um, and they're mostly political. They have to do also with, you know, there was this very, I think, interesting recent book on the tyranny of merit and trying to value oh, yeah. more people with other professions, trying to democratize education, trying to, to reach out to people who are very legitimately, I think, angry, right? So this is when we talk about the far right in general and the recent rise of the far right. Again, I don't think that this book offers the solution, but I think it at least engages with the problem in, in a serious way. And when we talk about far-right content, yes, this is a media problem. And again, there we need to make a distinction between content that's blatantly illegal, so hate speech, incitement of like murder, violence, etc. This, of course, should be removed. And I think, again, there are different legal traditions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but this is a pretty clear case of what we want to remove. And any argument that 
again, you know, platforms are not content moderators, they are not publishers, etc. That's naive. I mean, everyone knows that platforms have removed content for ages, all kinds of content. As a European, I'm always shocked that they remove nudity because no one in Europe cares so much. <laughs> I mean, Facebook removes all kinds of content all the time. So the argument that we can't touch, you know, hate speech and incitement for violence because, you know, it goes against free speech, this doesn't convince me at all. The problem is what to do with content that is not you know, illegal, but it's problematic. Um, and this is a very broad category. By the way, this information was there as well. And I think here, the approach that was suggested in an article that we all read um, by Jennifer Cope uh, and the colleague, of course, um, I think that article provided a good starting point because what they said was that the problem is not the content, the problem is the recommendation reg uh, algorithms of these media to begin with that promote content that otherwise wouldn't have uh, reached a lot of people. Uh, I think this is a very clever and a very um, yeah, efficient way to look at, at the problem. Um, and again, drawing on discussions we have had, these are not mine ideas. Uh, the right of free speech is not a right to free reach. If, if I... <laughs> That's Rene de Riesta who said yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> so I think this is this is very accurate. So we should not remove the content itself, but we should not allow companies to make profit um, out of you know recommending this type of content to thousands of people so that they can sell our data to advertisers. And again, so the far right content on media is of course a problem of regulation, but it also it is also a problem of the business model. And I think you have spoken about this very eloquently, and a lot of people are now drawing attention to this. And this is something that we need to take into account. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that strikes me too about about like platforms like Facebook or or Twitter is that they are, I mean, the service is curation, right? Like they're they're offering us a selection of articles that they think we might like. And 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 I agree with you completely that the issue is not the content. The way I always put it is if Donald Trump tweets, but nobody reads the tweet, did he really tweet? Um, you know, very philosophical, <laughs> more so the being removed, right? You see um, in the forest while tweeting. <laughs> Donald Trump tweets in the middle of the forest, but nobody reads his tweet. I <laughs> can retweet it. Doesn't really matter. Um, um, but yeah, and I agree with you. Like it's 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 the algorithm, and and our colleague uh, Josh Simons ha has written about you know um, all of the algorithms and and machine learning algorithms that that. Facebook chooses are, are ultimately political and, and what they're prioritizing and what type of content they're prioritizing. And they know this. Um, but then the question becomes, okay, so if you have uh, social media platforms that are based on this type of newsfeed curation, that's based on any other value besides chronology, how do we democratize that? Like, how do you pick values? Like, you know, what if we had like a perfect Facebook, like what would be the values that we would want their algorithm to take into account? Um, like how would how would we think about like the perfect social media platform? I like the the counterfactuals in our <laughs> discussion. Uh, yeah, so I think you know well that for me a perfect Facebook would not be the Facebook we currently have. Um, to be honest, I think no private platform should ever have the right to, to censor um, anyone, be it the far right, be it the far left, be it anyone who for some reason they consider, you know, not suitable or like not conforming to their terms of service. Uh, so for me, the perfect social media platform would not be a private monopoly corporation to begin with, full stop. It is not okay to have a private arbiter of truth regardless of how they try to democratize internet, etc. So my answer would be, uh, we should go back to the early years of the internet, the early utopias, I would even say, of the internet, when people considered it a public space and where we didn't have this enclosed, basically, you know, private um, companies that whose infrastructure we all use um, that remind me so much of shopping malls. So I, for me, Facebook is like a shopping mall of, of of the internet. It's, it's a very easy metaphor. Maybe some kind of a public social network. So as someone who is completely hooked on social media, I don't believe that abstinence is the answer. I think that we need to look at them as, again, to quote Josh, whom you mentioned, 
public utility. So I think social media are something that we all need. That's extremely useful and that has done great good to humanity as well. But precisely because it is so useful, so great, and has such an amazing potential, it should be something that we collectively own, collectively govern. And then the questions of like what is permissible and what is not permissible are going to be decided democratically in advance. Um, I don't think that I am the person who can say what values should be followed. And I think there is not a single person in the world who should be this person. Every society, every country has a very different view of what's acceptable and what's not. I gave the example of nudity. But again, for example, talking about the Second World War and the Nazi past, that is something that is complete taboo in some countries that basically no one cares in others. So I think what should happen is we need to have some kind of, um, well, national or maybe at least state, I would even say, social networks where people discuss um, the, the values they want to uh, embed, where people collectively own their data, where all decisions are ultimately yeah, democratic decisions. I know this is a total utopia <laughs> this, but I think it's a good idea. Again, it's not my idea. Um, I was very much influenced by a proposal made by Blaine Haggard, who is a researcher on internet regulation. But I think this is such a crazy proposal that it needs to be thought through carefully because who knows, it might work. We are so much now, um, we have gone so much in the direction of privatizing the internet that I think it's time to think of something that, you know, on the other side of the spectrum. Maybe in, in the end we will meet somewhere in between. Maybe we would have companies that are owned to some extent privately and to some extent uh, by the state. But for me, the only way to democratize it is to actually use democratic institutions. Democracy within a private company, I'm not very convinced about. Yeah, and then this gets to then kind of an interesting question because I I agree with you about the the problem of like private private control and then private censorship of of um, like social media even when they do things like I'm really enjoying Facebook's oversight board and they're having a trial for Donald Trump. You're like you're not like this is not a public state trial. You're just mimicking a trial to try to add some legitimacy. Um, I mean, it's interesting that they're doing it, but but I'm I'm not convinced by it. Um, but then, the, so this becomes these kind of two then two questions. On the one hand, right, like if you live in a de liberal democratic state, um, state control of of social media seems a little better, right? So like if the United States was like, okay, we're gonna like a bit like NPR or, or the UK and BBC. Like okay, the state is going to provide some funding um, for for something that we consider a public good, and and then we'll have, you know, first maybe First Amendment rights will apply in terms of the government not censoring free speech. But then, if you look at a context like, you know, social media was was said to be such a force in in, in like the Arab Spring, for instance. So then, if you have states like if the Egyptian state had been, you know, running Facebook or Twitter, then that would have been a completely different story. So like, so, so, you know, and, and, um, and, and you've written about this too. I mean, this, this, this question of like, what is digital sovereignty, right? Like the, the China and Iran state internet is, is, is thought of very differently than like public, like British or, or US um, internet. So, so how, how, I guess my question is like, how does, you know, the state democracy and private corporations fit together when we're thinking about who can control like digital online spaces? So I think that's a great question. Um, though I think it's a great theoretical question, practically I think um, the solution is not that difficult. So theoretically speaking, of course, if the Egyptian state currently was running a social media, that would have been a very, very problematic case. And probably people wouldn't have used it because they would have been afraid and they would have escaped and used other uh, social media or other forms of communication. In practice, I think that's not such a big problem because if you think of the states that in the Western liberal tradition are considered you know, not proper democratic states. So look at Russia, look at China. Do they use Facebook? Uh, the truth is that Russia has its contact here, so they have a, their own social media networks. China has Weibo and I'm certain a lot of other um, platforms that they use. Brazil has its own um, social media. This is point one. So I think even if we try to create public um, networks in the Western liberal countries, etc., 
that will not cause such a dramatic, uh, you know, change of affairs and the situation in countries such as Russia, China, etc. That anywhere are not so much hooked on Facebook as we are, right? Um, again, that leaves many other countries that are not um, liberal but do use Facebook, and there I, I don't have a straight answer. Maybe there are mechanisms to solve this. I think again, Jennifer gave a very good answer there. This is a question, though, of democracy first of this country. It's not a social media question. So I think we should not deal with this. Secondly, um, again, um, I think that trying to fix what we have in the Western liberal world might set a good example for other countries. Um, it would be better than what we have now. And I don't think that currently Facebook, for example, is really standing up to dictatorships anywhere in the world. <laughs> no. Rather the opposite. So I think what you're asking is great. And I think that I agree with it. And I, this is also something that I was considering in, in, in something that I wrote on the topic. But practically speaking, it can't get worse than what we have now. <laughs> it can only get worse. <laughs> no, 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 that's a good point. No, but I think I think the question then is is if you if you think about something, I'm thinking about like perhaps because I grew up and and lived in the U.S. context that the state is, and I think actually James Scott said this right. Like this, the state is a peculiar institution. It can be both a oppressor and it can be both a guarantor of our freedoms and so something like state control even if it's democratic state control of of social media or digital spaces can be both a liberator but also an oppressor even in western contexts right because i certainly would not have wanted to be on a platform that was started under the Obama administration, but then was transferred to the Trump administration. So I could imagine every in the West can descend into dictatorship quickly. Um, yeah, but it's it's a it's a interesting question, I guess. Then so that but then this also leads me to this question, which is sort of, sort of related to what we were talking about, which is like the splintering of the internet, and that was you know a while you know almost a decade at this point, the balkanization of the internet and the fear that like we would split into to different different country internets was like a big was a big um problem and now you do but now you do kind of see different um different types of, of regulation whether it's country by country or region by region so the eu uh versus the us versus china versus brazil or whatever um do, do you think this is a, a problem do you think that there should be state by state regulation does this somehow um, like threaten the sort of benefit that we get from these digital platforms, which is that they are global and don't care about international um, lines. You know, I can speak to you wherever you are in the world. It doesn't really matter. Um, or, or, it, or do you think that's a good idea that we should have state-by-state -state regulations? Yeah, so just... Uh, to briefly discuss the previous topic, so because you mentioned the balkanization of the internet, um, and I, I'm going to now tie everything in together greatly, or not, <laughs> <laughs> my plan at least is to do it. So um, I come from the Balkans, and when you're discussing that states can either be oppressive or very democratic, for me this is, uh, I would say, a rather simplified dichotomy, because in Bulgaria, where I come from, the state can also just be quite negligent. So two or three years ago, the state lost so the National Tax Agency lost the data of millions of people that were leaked online, uh, including, uh, you know, the, your most official citizen number, tax data, everything that you can imagine. So I would say that there is also a third option. You can simply have an inefficient state. Uh, <laughs> in this respect, probably Facebook is slightly better because imagine if someone suddenly had all your private messages, you know. So when we are talking about, and I, I recognize this, when I'm talking about state um, social networks, I also use the idealized efficient, efficient Western state model where actually if we own the data publicly, we will be able to safeguard it, people will be able to trust it, it would be secure, et cetera. Uh, in practice, this is very, very difficult. And I, I want to say I acknowledge this, but I still think this is uh, not something that should completely put us off um, and, you know, prevent us from thinking of alternatives. The state can be oppressive, it can be democratic, it can be negligent, but it is at least something that we can change collectively. Uh, while when we give too much power to private corporations, we are basically renouncing our power. We are renouncing our data. We don't know what's going to happen with it. And I feel very incapable of changing anything about the data. 
So that's with regard to the first yeah. one. I actually don't think it is that bad. Again, uh, I don't come from the U.S. context, but there was this very beautiful speech by Hillary Clinton, I think, around, somewhere around the Arab Spring, which was about how the internet is a force of global good. It's going to topple dictatorships. We have the freedom to connect. We should, you know, always um, help people who rebel against dictators and, you know, help them to, to express themselves. And in the moment, there was like even the slightest fear that someone might have interfered in the U.S. communication uh, environment, the Russians. <laughs> then the whole discourse changed completely and suddenly states had the right to regulate. Itself. So I think that the idea of a global internet is a very much U.S. hegemony idea. Um, which was, it is a global internet with U.S. infrastructure, um, with U.S. ideology. Uh, there is a very strong political economic argument for this. Um, remember, there is a book called The Real Cyber War that I read, and I really recommend it. So it deals with this whole discourse of the global internet. Um, in this sense, I think the balkanization of the internet might be also just a logical consequence of the, the rise of a more multipolar world in which the U.S. hegemony is not as strong as it used to be. Um, is it good as long as the internet is interoperable? I think it's fine. Um, then, again, is China uh, monitoring its citizens and, you know, somehow curtailing freedom of speech? Most probably. Um, is this a problem of the internet? No, it's, I think rather a, well, the political direction this country has taken. Um, can we do anything about it as foreigners? I, again, would say rather not, but I come from a very small country. I have very little ambition to export democracy. Um, I would say the balkanization, so-called, of the internet could be good if we actually have states that try to provide a good service, a safe service to their citizens. And again, the ones who don't uh, will not do this because the you know regulation of the internet along national basis is a bad idea. They will just not do it well because they are bad states. Uh, but I doubt that we can export democracy through them, through the internet, or you know, change things through the power of communication in itself. It's a very complex question. Uh, yeah, there's the political. The political yeah. is different than the the media question, which is sort of yeah. what we've been talking about. Then I wonder too, especially since you study the European context, like what's your read on? Um, because often, um, like we think of like the EU and GDPR, for instance, as like a collective um, um, undertaking. What, what's your read on how um, different states within the EU um, are thinking about um, like in internet issues? And is there a difference um, between them? Yes, certainly. So the question is, so I was, I can speak especially, I think, about the regulation of disinformation because I just wrote about this. Um, the EU as a whole uh, doesn't have a lot of legitimacy when it comes, for example, to regulating disinformation because it has not, most of the institutions have not been democratically elected. So the European Commission has been very careful there. And that is why it has really counted a lot also on this kind of more classical model of decentralized regulation, talking to Facebook, Twitter, uh, when we uh, talk about individual countries, for example, Germany or France, they have had a lot of ambition uh, to regulate the internet. Everyone is making fun of um, Macron's idea of, you know, uh, civilizing the internet. This was something that I think was first brought up by Sarkozy, but it, it does reappear in French discourse. And they do believe that they must control what these bad foreign companies are doing. The question is, um, Germany and France are big enough uh, to have a clout in, in the discussion. Smaller European countries basically have not tried to do almost anything. They don't have the power to do it, even if they want. Uh, Slovenia, with its 2 million citizens, can hardly convince Facebook to do anything. Neither can most European states. They are quite small. Um, the only chance there is a concerted collective European action. And we see this in uh, in many spheres. And to be honest, I think... There are many problems with the EU, um, but when it comes to, to internet regulation, I think it has been trying to, yeah, to do a good job. The only fear when it's, where it is really, really failing is innovation, because what the EU is currently trying to do is to you know, bring some common sense and data protection and you know, to stop hate speech uh, that's proliferating on platforms that are originally US-owned, where the US has followed, like, failed completely, has been to build its own platforms. If we don't like the US platforms, why can't we 
have platforms that are better. And here, the, the record, I think, of the EU is really horrible. It has tried to do a lot of things, but they always ended up ultimately very boring and no one used them. <laughs> the question is, why is not the EU investing in innovation? And it's not. So for me, this would be a very, very key thing. Apart from this, of course, trying to legislate uh, is great. And I think it does very, very good things in several spheres. Disinformation is not one of them, but yeah, hate speech, um, antitrust, etc. There I, I have faith, I think. But again, the EU in general, individual countries, especially the smaller ones, are not very strong. Yeah, I guess even even then, like one of the things that that made the news recently was that Australia is trying to pass some um, regulate, um, like it's like going to be like a tax or or something on on linking, and Google has threatened to pull out of the country completely, um, and so uh, and just not run search, and so it's it is interesting how much leverage you think about like these private companies have even on right like states like Australia. Um, so, so, so that, that is a very interesting thing that the, the, the coordinated EU approach seems important in that, in that regard. Yeah, agreed. Even though, again, uh, for example, if we think of the role of Ireland, uh, it, it is coordinated to a certain extent. Ireland is winning a lot from the presence of these companies there. So it's a bit acting, I would say, as a Trojan horse. I guess, too, then the, the other question is, how because we've talked about like the far right as as not like a it's not a media problem right it's a political problem and so do you see differences in in how the internet and how the far right is developing in different countries so because I was thinking when I was reading your stuff how similar a lot of the just like themes uh, you you had translated some things I think that were from the Bulgarian um, alternative right media and it could have been on any U.S. channel it was saying the exact same things using almost the exact same same terminology so how much coordination is there do you think in in the far right like across um, like states I think the far right is increasingly transnationalizing so that that's I think fascinating because it's usually the left that talks you know about international solidarity and let's do things together and live together. The far right has been so much more skillful when it comes to transnationalizing its discourse. Um, I would say this happens very much along also, um, let's say, language spheres. So we have very strong connections within the German language sphere, very strong connections between, for example, the UK, US, Canada, Australia. Um, Again, very interesting and strong connections in the French-speaking um, cultural sphere. So it's it's not full transnationalization, certainly, um, but yeah, they're really, really good at it. And of course, some topics circulate. Um, I mentioned anti-immigration, anti-so-called gender ideology, um, climate skepticism. Still, I would say there are differences in terms of how well the far right does electorally in different countries. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. by now it is becoming more and more mainstream in most of Europe. But we can't paint, you know, this kind of universal picture how it's on the right. In some countries, such as the the UK, we see, I think, very clearly how the Conservative Party has adopted some of the ideas of the far right because it's a two-party system. In other countries, we have all kinds of splinters. Uh, Bulgaria, the country I come from, I think currently has three far right parties in the parliament and two non-parliamentary. We have five far right parties <laughs> that, of course, quarrel between each other and thus become electorally less um, strong. Putting these regional, national differences aside, it is really on the rise everywhere. Um, and this, I think, is very, very troubling. And this is something very new. And what is missing is a very coordinated left, um, at least in the European context, that can uh, put forward, again, a series of coherent topics, narratives, etc. cetera. Uh, there we have much less transnationalization. And I find this very worrying and fascinating at the same time. Yeah, it strikes me that then, like, the, the response to the far right has been like a like a very technical response right like so the far, response of the far right has not been like okay like how do we address like the underlying social like things that are causing this or like how do we present like an alternative political vision it's been like how do we change Facebook's algorithms so that far right content isn't um, promoted 
Um, so do you think, do you think that there could be an algorithmic response to the far right? Or do you think that this is just like using technical framing to try to address a political problem? Yeah, I think absolutely not. To be honest, algorithmic solutions to begin with are highly problematic because they are very, especially when we talk about content, um, when we talk about, you know, changing the recommending systems and making companies liable, et cetera, what we discussed earlier, that is, I think, more easily doable. If we count on algorithms to, to decide on content, that's just a lost cause. My most favorite example, when there was this huge scare in the U.S. about the Russian uh, intervention in the U.S. elections, Twitter wanted to remove uh, Russian bots. And so the algorithmic criterion to do this was to find text in Cyrillic, with uh, I think a YouTube video, like there was a set of things that like classified as a bot tweet. And then everyone from uh, the Bulgarian Twitter who had posted videos was suddenly removed because we use him. <laughs> and there was something else that had satisfied the criterion. And of course, what makes this story particularly funny is that the people who use Twitter in Bulgaria are very different as a demographic group from many other uh, contexts. So the ones who use it in Bulgaria are like super progressive, very, you know, kind of kind of democratic, liberal people, and they were all censored. So this is just in brackets. Algorithmic solutions, I think, are not good. Um, Deplatforming, also, I'm not certain whether it works. It certainly decreases the reach of this kind of more, um, you know, extreme far-right content. So in this sense, it pushes them away from the mainstream. But my problem with this is, and we have discussed this many times, um, this type of approach does not solve websites that produce content, such as the one that I am looking at. So these blogs, et cetera, have a lot of people who actually explicitly go online, open them and read them, uh, which is quite rare. But in this case, it does happen still. So if you remove particular profiles from Facebook, et cetera, you don't remove this type of content in general. It is somewhere in the internet still. Uh, or like on the internet. This is the second thing uh, that makes me a bit more worried about such type of approaches. But finally, and this is my, I think, political scientist background speaking, there is not a media solution. People who have these ideas have them, uh, not because, you know, they might have encountered them online, but they also meet offline, they share them in conversations, they mobilize around them, they build communities around them, and they ultimately have them because they feel dissatisfied. And unless we start posing seriously the question, why are people so dissatisfied? We cannot solve any of this. For example, we are talking for currently about COVID disinformation. Why is it so prominent among the far right? Well, a lot of the people who vote far right uh, are also people who have currently lost their jobs. They are either on like unemployment benefits or not in the worst case. Um, there are people who see themselves forced to stay at home, who can't feed their families. These people already have the idea that the state does not work for them, and they're probably quite right in this respect. Uh, removing the content from the internet makes them only more certain that they are, you know, chased, persecuted, and not represented. I think we need to establish uh, a system that allows people to feel better represented. Um, of course, and I can't solve this. If these people have horrible views on many um, on many questions. Maybe representation will not be very good, but at least we can engage them in a conversation. We can try to solve some of the problems. And ultimately, if 90% of the population don't like something, we can't, I think we can't change the, the democratic desires of a people. I come from a background that is deeply conservative. I quarrel with everyone on every topic possible um, because I, I do have a lot of far-right friends. And I think they're deeply wrong. Don't get me wrong. I think they're, they have horrible views. But if they're a majority in a country, I can't change anything. As long as they don't resort, resort to violence or like horrible things, which is clearly illegal, et cetera. There is not much we can change apart from actually starting to mobilize on our own, trying to convince them, trying to give hopefully alternative policies, trying to reduce inequality, trying to show these people that there is another way that does not go through the hate towards immigrants, et cetera. But in the current situation, which they don't see any alternative and nothing is offered to them, just saying them, you're a bad, go away, don't think we'll solve anything. There are so few people from the far right that study the far right. We study the far right as if they're an exotic species. 
which is very different from the traditions of studying social democracy, at least in Europe or conservative parties. Uh, we don't understand them and we don't want to understand them, um, which I think, again, makes it very difficult to, to deal with what they are saying. Again, maybe we will understand it and it will be horrible. You know, I don't say that understanding someone means agreeing. I think that the more we understand someone, the more we can disagree. But yeah, we don't even make an effort, I think, to see what they're saying. So if you could recommend like one policy change, whether it was to a private corporation, whether it was to a state, whether it was a to a supernatural like structure like the EU, what would be your one policy recommendation? Ooh, very good question. So I think when it comes to, to social networks currently, I think I would definitely try to, A, recommend more innovation policy so that we can find alternatives to what we already have. B, um, really try to address current recommender um, algorithms that we have. I think the second one is the more realistic one. The first one is the one that is a more long-term solution. The third one would be, of course, to somehow convince these companies to, to you know, become part of the state and let's all decide democratically on their policy. But this is so unrealistic that I, I don't recommend it. Um, when it comes to broader societal policies, I think everywhere we need to reduce inequality. Uh, and this is something that cannot be done if we continue to have private uh, monopoly corporations, regardless of whether they're the social media ones or other ones. We need to reduce inequality, be it through taxation, be it through, you know, democratizing education and cutting the ridiculous fees for education in countries such as the US and the UK. There are so many European countries in which education is for free or almost for free. This should not be, a, you know, exclusive good. Everyone should have the right for an education. Um, and again, if the people who don't want it should be respected for the work they do. But this cannot happen in such a society that we live in. But this requires political mobilization, and this is, I think, where the conversation goes back to the beginning. We have this mobilization on the far right, and we have a lot of mobilization um, on non-progressive causes. When it comes to progressive causes, unfortunately, we don't see as much. This can change, and we can use, ultimately, I think, even the current social media that we have uh, for more uh, progressive political movements. Thank you so much again to Yulia for coming on to talk to us about your research on the rise of the far right. All of the articles, books, and blog posts that Yulia and I mentioned will be available in our show's show notes, so be sure to check them out. You can also receive an email newsletter, which will have all of these links and more. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, be sure to subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts.